But perfection is not what God is looking for. It's direction. And he points people in a new direction. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for every opportunity to share your Word. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the truth. I thank you, Lord, for all that you provide, because, Lord, nothing comes from us. Jesus said it, I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me. You can do nothing. So, and that is absolutely correct. I mean, totally and absolutely the truth, as everything that Jesus ever said. How do we know that? Well, us, those of us who have come to believe by your grace have come to know you and receive the truth that you are who you say you are. Not just because the Bible has never been proved to be false, but because there's a personal connection between those who have been brought into the kingdom, who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, your dear son. And that connection is real, it's living, it's true. It's like any connection we have with any person. It's totally predicated on faith, but that faith is given from that same God who's made that connection with us through a rebirth. So for you, to you, I give, Lord, total praise and honor and glory for the relationship, for what Christianity is, is built upon. And I ask, dear Lord, that you would bless the speaking of this message today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is uh, episode 50, and it's in what I've chosen to call a cultural Christianity series. And <clears throat> so we might ask, what do I mean by cultural Christianity? Well, there are cultures in the world, There are just as there are religions in the world. And there is a major, major difference between the Christian religion and all other religions. And that main difference is this word grace. The reformers rediscovered it in 1500 and following. And when the Lord God opened the eyes of men to see what the gospel was, which had been lost for about 900 years, that the gospel is built upon a person. It's not built upon precepts and principles and laws and commands. Uh, Clearly, the Old Testament was given, and uh, the commandments were given on Sinai to Moses to show the standards, the requirements of Almighty God. And it was given as a schoolmaster, as we're taught in Romans, to teach us that we are wicked people and we could never satisfy God's demands of morality, of love. And that being the case, God sent his beloved Son after disclosing that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and giving more weight to it and more color even in the New Testament. We thank God for this, but that being the case, it's not built upon works and obedience. It's built upon the, the sufferings and death of the Son of God. And in that relationship, sanctification takes place, which is a word just means a process of change from going from a sinner to a saint, which is the work of God. There's no credit to be taken for it. No pride should arise from it. It's all a gift of God. So as it is written by the Apostle John in his gospel, so it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ created all things, just as it says in Genesis 1. 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It did not evolve. Now that's a culture. That's what people choose to believe in the, the, the scientific West world. Communism is a culture, and it's taken place and swept from the, the 1900s, the 1800s into the 1900s, and it's just thrown atheism in many parts of the world, saying there is no God, and evolution is the way to go, and, you know, Marx had it right, and Darwin had it right, and even though it's, it's built on an unreasonable concept that everything came from nothing. But according to John chapter 1, as in Genesis chapter 1, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Something had to come first. You can't go from nothing to something. Well, what was the God? What was it that was first? God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's Jesus Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus, who was God from the beginning, our beginning, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of creation, who eternally existed. The only thing that makes sense. It had to come from something. That's why little children, where did everything come from? It's, it's in our consciousness, in our conscience, in our brain, in our reasoning ability, a gift from God that we have to understand when you see a house, you say, who built it? When you see creation, who built it? So John begins with the word, the expression of God, which is Jesus Christ, which further down when we read a little further, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, rebirth gives people the ability to comprehend, and not comprehend, but understand these vital truths about an eternal God in creation. So then this God who was in the beginning, who created all things, became a man. And in verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh, and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father. Sons of God as created beings, one thing, the only begotten Son of God is an eternal, eternal Son of God who is connected to the Father in an eternal state, something we can't comprehend, 
but something we can understand because God said it and it is true. And so it is that he became flesh. And that's why in the first letter that John wrote, in uh, not the gospel, but the letter, he begins the same way because he and the other disciples, who later became apostles, walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. They heard his sermons. They saw his miracles. They touched him. They, they, were, they were friends. What was from the beginning, he begins to say in his letter, what we have heard, what was from the beginning, our beginning, what we have heard, these 12 men, one later betrayed him and committed suicide, replaced by the Apostle Paul, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is a real person to them. This is a person who could lay his hands on a leper and he would become blind. He could, he could make mud out of a spit and put it on his eyes and, and make the man see. He could, he could make lepers walk. He could make people who, who, could, who were lame walk and people who you know, had all kinds of infirmities, demon possession, cast them out. This is no normal man by their own testimony. And they all died for the faith. People don't die for a lie. Who dies for a lie? We might die for the truth. A, a good man might die for his fr friend. But Jesus, while we were yet enemies, died for us. This is a completely different picture than the religions of the world that teach us that we have to be good. And if we're good enough, we can obtain something with God. And the life was manifested in verse 2, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, partnership, uh, br brought into a, a union a godly relationship built on God himself where people communicate in love. They act in love. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. There is joy in fellowship with God. There is joy in obedience to God, in believing in God. And so it is that this is the basis of what Christianity truly is. It's built on an offering by God. It is the love of God manifested in people's hearts and minds and lives. Now, culture in a sinful world, which this world is, where Adam sinned and he passed that on through genetics, and so we're all actually the, the, the family, the race of the human race. And this race of Adam, always propagating as we reproduce this same sinful nature. When we get to a certain place in our growth, in our years, and it's different for every person, but whether it's at six or it's at eight, there's this place where we discern right from wrong, and as the sinners we are, we choose to sin. And it becomes personal at that point. At that point, we're guilty of our own sin, even though it's passed on 
from Adam. So there's individual responsibility, and then there's the end of the, of the race. And that's why the, the Bible teaches original sin. It teaches sin in Adam, which is passed on. There's a unity that can't be um, denied. You know, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin produces death. Now that death is the, is the call, the, the, the proof, if you will, that we are all sinners. God said to Adam, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you shall. In that day, you shall die. And in that day, he died spiritually. He lived 900 and, what, 30 years after. But the fact is, uh, physically he lived, but it wasn't long before he died spiritually because of disobedience to God. And that spiritual death is why people can't get the truth right. We're bound in the lies of our own pride and making ourselves out to be something that we are not. And for the Christian, the person who puts his faith in Jesus Christ and is born again and regenerate, he still has battles with the world that is about him, with the flesh, and with the devil. And those battles can be won or lost. Of course, the war is won through faith in Jesus Christ, but the battle, individual battles, can be horrendous and they can be lost. And for this reason, I'm pointing the, at this, this reality of the culture and how it breaks in on us. And that's why in Romans chapter 12, the apostle, after laying down thick theology of the basis of Christianity and salvation, and he says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we are to present, you know, have them in a place where they're always ready to serve. That's the mindset, or should be, of the Christian, which really is enhanced by a prayer life. Read the scripture, study the scripture, know the truth, discern the truth from the lies of the world and the devil, and then present yourself to God, is what the Christian is instructed to do. And then he adds in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's, there's a proving of the will of God. How? By, not, by non-conformity to the cultures of the world. What's uh, the culture telling us today? Well, there's so many things. But I'm just going to point out one. You know, if you look across movies, if you visit churches, you see this phenomenon that 100 years ago didn't exist, and that phenomenon is that women have become preachers and pastors and, and teachers, and not only among women, but they, they do that among men. I mean, just full-out preachers. Where, where did that come from? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, I mean, I'm not going to go into big detail on this, but, you know, there are no men disciples. Jesus never chose a woman to, to follow with him. Not one. I mean, only men were included as disciples and apostles. Apostles have their names written in the, on the, the foundation pillars of the New Jerusalem. There's only 12 names there, just as there are only 12 tribes of Israel, you know. 
and without going into those details of the number, but the fact is that God has repeatedly just chosen men. People are going to pick up, you know, that there was women judges. Okay, uh, what we're talking about here is a, a person who's a prophet and who's speaking to men. Um, in First Timothy, very clear passage, and you know, you can take scripture out of context and you can do whatever you want with it. I'm not doing that here today. We're just going to look at very plain passages without twisting them into something they don't say. In verse 11 of chapter uh, 2 of, first of Paul's first letter to Timothy, it says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Every person, of course, is required to be submissive. She is in, required to receive instruction going on to verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The Apostle Paul never spoke on his own initiative when writing the Word of God. It's not called the Word of Paul. It's called the Word of God. And any person who points to Paul as some type of male chauvinist is not understanding, nor are they hiding, um, nor are they holding the word of God in its proper place as in authority over all other forms of communication. This is from God, inspired by God through men. So when the Apostle Paul spoke, unless you believe the Bible is, in, is not inerrant and infallible, that it's not perfect in every word and in its entirety. If you do not believe that, then you won't receive this as the word of God. So you're done at that point. It's either the word of God, which it says it is all through, and God is lying in all those parts where the word of God is perfect, or it's true. And Paul, speaking for God, is saying, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. She can teach women, that's fine. But according to God, no, not men. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Adam was created and Eve came from Adam. Adam did not come from Eve. And when you can go into birth and, and pro, uh, you know, in propagating the faith. But the fact is the first person born, and that's the point here, the first one created was Adam. And then Eve. He was alone, took out the rib. It's a true story. From the rib created the woman. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What Adam did, he, do, he did having known exactly what God said. Didn't make him less uh, culpable, less responsible. If anything, it made him more responsible. The point here is not responsibility or the depth of responsibility is one worse than another. That's not the point here. The point here is Adam was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, and which would also make Adam responsible for not having properly communicated to Eve you know, what she should and shouldn't do. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity 
with self-restraint. And he's pointing out, you know, a, a woman's responsibilities as she's made to bear children and to bring those church children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Does that save a person? Absolutely not. Salvation is upon repentance. And upon repentance, people who repent of sin through the grace of God then turn from that sin and fulfill the duties and responsibilities as they were always meant to be, imperfectly, but perfection is not what God is looking for, it's direction. And he points people in a new direction. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, in those scripture verses, the, the point here is that it's of grace and it's a gift. No one receives a gift on their birthday and then says, how much do I owe you for this? There's nothing owed. It's a gift. It's given freely. It has nothing to do with the person who receives the gift. It's the gift giver. Our attention in the Gospels is on God through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offered himself as sufferings on the cross to bear the wrath and anger that God would place upon every man, woman, child, every person of the human race, unless they were saved out of that condition, born again, regenerate, beginning the process of sanctification whereby they are changed into something new. It's a metamorphosis. They go from a caterpillar to a butterfly. That's the process, and we're not in control of it. God is. He brings circumstances in our life. He places the Holy Spirit to give not only the truth, but also power and transforming power. This is what separates Christianity and obedience from the culture that is around us that says, well, women should have an equal place, and women's rights come in, and they deny the Holy Scriptures, the truth of God, and that's what sinful people do. They deny what God has said and what God has commanded and what God is doing. What, is, what he's doing in Christianity. You know, it doesn't matter what the religion, it doesn't matter what section, what sect of Christianity is living in disobedience like those uh, who are cults, uh, like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and so many others that pretend to be Christian or a form of Christianity, and then they teach horrendous doctrines, and people are lost in those things, believing that they are saved. It's hard to say these things. I know that there's judgment that comes down, and people hate to hear these kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is, this is it's from Scripture from which I speak. Now, let me expand this by giving instructions that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples in Luke chapter 17. And the reason we're going here is because we're talking about cultural Christianity, which presses in on true Christianity, wants to steal the truth away in order to keep people locked into some form of religion which does not save. And Jesus refers to these as stumbling blocks. A stumbling block is, a, is something thrown in a person's way by which they don't see it. They stumble and fall over it, and they're ruined, broken. In the worst case, it, in, in some case, it could refer to one Christian or, or being stumbling over this, but in the, in the larger sense, in the general sense, it's about these false religions. So he said to his disciples, his followers, in 17.1 of the 
Gospel of Luke, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. This is another way of giving woes on false teachers as God gave woes on false prophets in the Old Testament and in the New. One who tells forth the word of God or says he does and then lies and speaks an untruth. In verse 2, it says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. A person who goes out and says that he's a Christian, like a Joel Olstein, and talks about your best life now. If this is your best life now, if now it's your best life, well, eternity is not going to be very good. Eternity is either heaven or hell. And that's something people don't really talk about much who are false prophets or false teachers. Sometimes there are those sects that do pronounce woes and hell. Um, and so you can't put them all into one single box. But modern day teachers, you know, they'll t- talk an awful lot, but they won't talk much about hell and wickedness and sin and all of that. And that's one way of distinguishing the stumbling block from the true follower of Christ. And the warning here coming from Jesus is about a millstone, big, heavy stone, which could go from a ton to, you know, tonnage, many tons. You know, would rather be, you would be better off having it hung around your neck, you're not going to get away from it, and thrown into the depths of the sea where the fish can eat you. Then he goes on and says to the, uh, his disciples, be on your guard. And this is speaking to the brethren, Christian people. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Now within the church, now we're leaving what stumbling blocks could be, as in causing people not to see the gospel, in, in, the, in the face of false teachers, they can also happen within the church. And in this case where a brother sins within the church, judgment begins within the church. In many and it should always begin there. Um, he's warning this disciples to be on their guard. Guard about what? If your brother sins, this can be ca- a cause of stumbling. And so be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. This is something else that the culture has come in well over 100 years now, where the idea of rebuking and discipline and holding one another accountable for sin has just been swept away, and it's all about, quote-unquote, forgiveness. Blank check, do what you want, you can sin how you want, and nobody's going to hold you accountable. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us to be on our guard. Why? Because we're supposed to care for one another. If your brother sins, don't stumble over it. Don't say, how could he do that? Or is God working in his life? And and not say anything, but just in your own heart and soul, judge the man. It's not about judgment. It's not about judgment. It's about the capability that every Christian has to sin, and he can do it in a very open way, and he can do it in a blatant way, and he can do it not caring for anyone. Now, it's wrong to sin, whether it's in your mind or it's in action, 
But here's something that becomes obvious. And every person should pray who's a Christian and should read the word in order to be holy, in order to not sin internally, in your mind, in your heart. And as sin becomes apparent, as John tells us in his first chapter, we're to walk in the light and we're to confess sin quickly and we're to understand and be cleansed and not go on into deeper levels of sin. In this case, if your brother sins, you see it openly, rebuke him in a loving way after finding out for sure that what you have seen is actually the truth. And then after the brother finds that out, as in Matthew chapter 1, you go to a brother. Just straight up, you and him, or you and her, uh, woman to woman, man to man, and say, you know, I see this thing. You know, is this what I see? You know, explain it. And it may be nothing. It, you may not appear to be what, it's, what you think it is. And then, you know, you apologize, and I'm sorry for thinking that about you. And, you know, and in many cases that I know of, people become closer because of that care for a person's soul. And if he repents after the rebuke takes place, you found out it really is true. He lied or he stole something or something took place and it was disobedience. And you rebuke him and he, oh, I'm so sorry. And he, he turns away. Well, then the, the response is forgiveness. Now, Jesus takes it to a place where it's not likely to happen, which is seven times in a day, but he does that for a reason. The extent of forgiveness. The idea here is that people could stumble and fall over sin and do that repeatedly even as a Christian. And that may turn into a cycle which needs to work itself out. And if people are helping people, if Christians are living in brotherly love, it makes it much more possible, especially if there is prayer going into it, especially if we're dealing with it out of the wisdom of the word of God and through doctrine. Teaching of Christ is able to make a person obedient. If it's not used, if it's just, yeah, do better, that's going to lead to nothing. That's going to lead to human effort. Identification with Christ in the doctrines of the Christian faith uh, are the truths of the Word of God. Identification itself in Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, that identification is hugely powerful through the working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life to make a person obedient in his Christian walk. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Forgiveness to those who have been forgiven an eternity of debt. It's nothing to forgive another person, another brother in Christ. And herein, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have one for another. The love to rebuke, the love to forgive. To love to walk in grace one to another. So seeing this uh, impossibleness in their own minds at the time, not understanding fully the work of the Holy Spirit, because this is before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and greater discernment is given to the church, which was leading up to that, Uh, for the 40 days prior to that, after the resurrection and until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was teaching the disciples post-resurrection. And so the apostles seeing this said to our Lord, increase our faith. I mean, how are we going to do this? I mean, this is really crazy. I mean, forgiving people really like to this extent, I can't do it. I mean, you can see it going through their mind. 
And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, a tree that gets as much as 70 feet tall, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, so like it's going to grow legs or something, and it's going to walk, and it's going to throw itself, you know, in, into the sea. Uh, it's a miracle. It's something that doesn't happen unless God comes down and does it. Trees just don't walk. And so it's, he's talking about, okay, so let's look at this where he's saying the seed, faith like a mustard seed. Small seed there is. Teeny tiny little faith into a really big God who can do whatever he pleases. He can enter into history and do things that just don't happen naturally. He can raise the dead. That doesn't happen naturally. He can turn a person from a sinner into a saint. That's a miracle. It doesn't happen naturally. And so he's saying, it's not your faith. Don't get proud because you have faith. Don't get proud because you pray. Don't get proud about anything. He's saying it's teeny tiny faith in a really big God. Faith is not something that we even can manufacture in ourselves. It's a gift. All good things come down from God who, who is unchanging, James says in chapter 1. All good gifts come from the Father of lights, actually. Light, he illuminates the mind. He gives grace to the soul. He transforms people from sinners to saints. All a gift, including the faith to believe. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe that every good gift comes from God. And if faith isn't a gift, then you, a saving faith, then you have nothing to exercise as a wicked sinner. Having said that, I'm not going to go into detail on it. I'd love to do that in a future podcast. Verse 7 says, and he tells this story. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep, and I apologize if you're offended by the word slave, but God used it, and I have no choice but to use it also, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? He's asking a hypothetical here. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So let's recount what's going on here. So there's a slave and a master. The master owns the slave. Um, the, the, not saying, in the Bible, it's not saying it's right for such a thing to take place. It's just recounting what people do in a wicked world. They own slaves. Um, the, the Roman world of which they were living at the time is said to have one in five people was a slave. 20% of their population were slaves. Why? They went to war, like people are still doing today. And when they would beat down their enemy, they would turn them into, you guessed it, slaves. And so these men became their slaves and women. And they did awful things and down through history. And there's different types of slaves in the Roman Empire and all of that. But that, without going into detail on that, it's what people have done for thousands of years uh, in all different kinds of uh, people groups and nationalities and all of that. And so the, the picture here is of a master and a slave. And by the way, throughout the New Testament, 
the apostles refer to themselves as slaves. And even re- the very end of Revelation, the slaves of Jesus Christ. The, the only one who can own a slave by right is Almighty God because he owns everything. How could, he not, how could we not be slaves by, from God, under God, when he owns all things? He's the only one who created. I mean, which one of us created the sun? I mean, which one of us created the earth? I mean, come on. What have we created? I mean, we make things from what God has created, but we don't create anything. No man is, or angel has ever created a single thing. That belongs to the power of Almighty God and him alone. And that gives him authority over the things that he owns. One of his names is El Elyon, you know, the possessor of heaven and earth, you know, as it's recorded in English. But we will not say to him, he doesn't say, this is what he says, having a slave and plowing, tending sheep, will not say to him, he has come in, when, when he's coming from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat. He's not going to tell the slave to eat. He's going to tell the slave, properly clothe yourself, get clean, get washed up, and then serve me properly. Give me to eat and drink. He does not thank the slave. The master doesn't thank the slave either for doing the things which were commanded. And Jesus says, does he? I mean, they knew. No, that's not the way it works. Now, is God not one to be humble? Uh, Yes, this is an earthly story that he's telling it's an earthly story to point to what we, who we are in relationship to Almighty God. God gave his son. Let's get this straight. God couldn't give more. God is generous. God is not like a human sinful slave. God is anything but that. But as an earthly story, he's pointing to the relationship between God and men. And everything in context makes sense. Because what he's, Jesus is about to say here can be abused and misused and become something brutal as one man communicates to another. One person communicates to another. It can be brutal. Jesus is not being brutal here. He is defining what takes place between Almighty God and those whom God has created and having become sinful people. He does not thank the slave as the situation would be even in the world. And then in verse 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you. This is what Jesus said. I'm not saying this. I'm reading verse 10 from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, as the disciples, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded the things that were done when they interacted with the living Son of Almighty God, that which was from the beginning. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, which no one does, but this is a person at the utmost who's able to do everything God could command, excuse me, say, this is what's supposed to be said, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, the word for unworthy, slaves, unworthy, useless, good for nothing. People will become very hurt by this. You know, someone says to them, you're you're unworthy. You know, you're you're nothing. You're useless. You're good for nothing. Those words hurt, and I understand that. 
And God is not saying as one person communicates to another person, you know, you're worthless and I'm not. That's not what's going on here. This is as a person looks at Almighty God. And as he looks to Almighty God, he recognizes his state. Not just as a sinner, but as a created being. Um, the, the scriptures teach and make very, very clear uh, that all things come from God. I've just stated that. And not only that, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You look through John chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, and you see intimate teaching between Jesus and the disciples at the Lord's Supper. They're in the upper room. He's going to go to Gethsemane. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to pray and sweat blood. He's going to have blood pulled from his body through the scourging and through the crucifixion and through the horrendous way that he was put to death for our sins. So that there should be no, uh, nothing that reflects on God from this passage that shows him to be anything like human people the way we treat one another. This is about who God is in his person in eternity, in his eternal existence, that he is all-knowing, all-loving. He has the same character that he has in his infinite attributes of being all-powerful and from being everywhere present at the same time, filling everything, and that he... He is the creator God from eternity. He, he, he exists, existence is from eternity. You've got to wrap your mind around that concept because what we don't know that. We don't know it in experience. We've never seen it. We don't, we don't get it in experience. But this is who God says he is, and it's reasonable. And so when we relate to God as created beings, nothing comes from us. When he says... You're good for nothing. He's not putting us down in the sense, he's not looking at sin even in this portion and saying you're, you're no good, you're evil. That's not, it's not even that that he's saying. He's saying from creation, you know, you're able to do and think and be to the extent that I have given you. I've given you the mind to think with. You didn't say one day before you existed, I think I'll create myself and I'll make myself a fabulous brain. It didn't work that way. There was a time when each one of us did not exist. And in the grace of God, in the plan of God, from before the foundation of the world, actually, he planned for each person to be. And when the time was fulfilled that he planned, then he brought us into being. And he gave us everything we have, everything. So that the, the, the and I'm, this is, sin corrupts things. And you look at the world and you say, well, God didn't make a very good. No, we didn't make, we do, we do create one thing, sin. We chose to be disobedient. And that disobedience has consequences. God has placed within a world where people actually are disobedient, hateful to the God who gave them life. He has placed in that world consequences. And it's the consequences that we're looking at when we see 
deformities, when we see retardation, when we see physical ailments, when we see sickness and death, all of that, all of that are consequences placed there by a loving God that says, wake up. Look at what's going on here. The reason for this, why is God doing this to me? The reason for this isn't God being hateful or being incomplete or incapable of doing, making a, a world that's perfect and beautiful without any consequences. No, sin has accomplished that. You want to answer for that? Why did the Twin Towers come down? Why wars and why diseases? Sin. Sin is the reason. Disobedience to God who gave us life gives us the ability to think and feel and create in the sense that we make things and, and design things. All of this coming from the mind that he gave us, the soul that he placed within us, the ability to be Christ-like and God-like and made in his image. All of this comes from God. So when he says, after you've done everything that I've commanded, if that could be possible now in a sinful world, say, you are, we are, unworthy, good-for-nothing slaves owned by God. We have done only that which we ought to have done. We have done, actually in the Greek, we have done that which we ought to have done. So what is he saying? He's saying, look at yourself in the true light. Look in your, at yourself the way you really are, rather through, than through this lens of pride. And this message is about cultural Christianity, remember. What does the culture say to us? You know, if it comes from within inside you, Mr. Miyagi said to Danielson, then it's always right. Well, where's that coming from? It's coming from the human heart, and the human heart is always right. I mean, the culture in the, a, a movie that's a really cute, good family-type movie, you know, is saying in that sentence that everything's good with inside of us, if it comes from within inside of us. And, and maybe it's not totally saying that, but to, certainly to an extent further than what Jesus is saying here. Actually, if what's placed inside of us by God comes out, that's always good because it's coming from God. That's cultural Christianity. We are evil sinners. We're, we, we have nothing to give when we're not sinners. The angels praise God all the time. I mean, they're actually literally praying and praising God. Angels, massive amount of angels. What are they praising him for? Their existence. What are they praising him for? for? For their mind to be able to know things and see things. And who knows the extent of what goes on in heaven among the angels. We know that they serve men. And they go back and forth. And they do who knows what in this warfare against demon spirits. And when they get back there, and even when they're, not, when they're away, it's all about praise. They're never, they never stray from the reality that God is everything they need. When Michael is contending with the devil, it says even he didn't bring a railing accusation against Satan, but he, he said the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. He knew where the power was. And he was able to rebuke Satan. How? 
by clinging to and hiding himself in the Lord. And it stands the same for Christians. There is spiritual warfare. Maybe you're not aware of it. Maybe you think everything is about intellectualism and psychological problems and all these things. Let me tell you, there, there's witchcraft in the earth. There are demons in the earth. There are seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, according to Paul, in the earth. And spiritual warfare is a much bigger part of what happens in Christian churches and among even Christian people than they realize. And in other parts of the world, they realize this much more than we do. But in our scientific, intellectual society, culture, we don't see that. Just like we don't see just how unworthy and good for nothing we are unless we receive from God first. Identification with Christ is everything. So this passage isn't about man speaking to man. It's about God speaking to man. It's about how man thinks of himself in light of Almighty God. And in bringing this to light like I'm doing right now, people won't do. I mean, you just don't tell people that they are worthless, that they're good for nothings. Well, I'm not. But I'm, when I speak for God, I have to speak for God. So I have to say what he said. And he said, say. This is what Jesus said. He said, say. That you are all unworthy. Now, Gehenna is a place that God, Christ, used to uh, explain hell. He's walking by the garbage dump, which was a fire that burned, and you threw your garbage into the fire, and he's talking about hell. So in a picture form, he's saying when at the end of time, when judgment falls upon mankind and all those that are not found in Christ by God's grace alone, those people will be thrown out like the garbage. I'm not saying this. This is what Jesus referred to when he explained hell. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The masses go there. I mean... Uh, you know, the, the gate is narrow. The way is very constricted that leads to eternal life. Few find that way. Many, many go through the broad road that leads to destruction. And destruction is pictured in hell, the place where God hands out the garbage. Now look, if you're offended by these things, don't be offended. Walk in the truth. The truth shall set you free, Jesus said. You'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Free to what? Free from a lie that binds your mind and binds your heart and keeps you constricted in something that's destructive. Lies are always destructive. People lie to people. They steal from people. They, they create these philosophies that send them to hell religions, false religions, they, there's no grace in any of those religions. But in Christianity, that's not being altered by a stumbling block, a false prophet, a false teacher who's lying and bringing into Christianity or trying to, if he's not making a false religion, he's bringing it to something that is false and it's destructive and it turns people into slaves to sin. Romans chapters five through eight really explain in such great detail how the freedom in Christ leads to slavery of righteousness, doing what's right. And not only that, it gives a person actually the ability before God to be pleasing and to do what's right. Before that, 
there is no freedom to do what's right. There's only the restriction, the slavery, the bondage that sin creates. It, go, it starts with pride. We think who we are. We have a wrong understanding of how we stand before Almighty God. And then we're pulled into this, this bondage of sin. There's release for you in faith in Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the cross, the Jesus who gave himself so that people might live eternally. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the, the writers who all perished at the hands of ungodly men, just as Jesus did, whether they were thrown off a roof or they were killed with a sword or they were beheaded, crucified. All the followers, they all went that way, um, stranded on a desert island. They all died in faith, being persecuted by the lost. I thank you for their faith. I thank you for their, the words as they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the truth. We give you praise. And I pray, Lord, for the hearers, any who do not know Christ would come to Christ and that they would be born again and repent of sin by your power and they would come to know the sweetness of a God who would offer such a great sacrifice for sin. I pray, Lord, for those who are in the church. Maybe they're stumbling over someone right now. Maybe they're a stumbling block to someone else. Lord, rectify these things and uh, open our eyes to see uh, the culture for what it is and how it presses in on us. And it wants our life. It wants, um, it wants us to be a stumbling block as well to the world. Lord, we're not called to be stumbling blocks, but rather a light that, uh, like John the Baptist, who, who shines, who, who focuses people's attention on Jesus Christ, who himself is the light of the world. May he be a light to the hearers of this message today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.